This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Given the challenges facing the nation and the budget constraints at all levels of government, public funds must increasingly be invested in what works. While much of the current public debate has focused on whether our nation should spend more or fewer resources, it is also critical to get better results from existing resources. Data and evidence of impacts are rarely used as criteria in decisions about how to allocate public funds. By investing in what works, limited dollars can be directed towards programs that demonstrate proven success and generate greater impact. The nation's social programs are unlikely to be improved until we learn to enact programs supported by rigorous evidence, to improve existing programs based on evidence, and to shut down failing ones, again, based on evidence from high-quality program valuation. What is the Federal Invest in What Works Index? What can be done to better integrate evidence and rigorous evaluation in budget management and policy decisions? How can federal agencies increase and enhance their evaluation capacity? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guests, John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed, Senior Fellows at Results for America. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Nice to be here, Michael. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for having us. So, John, to provide necessary context, would you tell us about the mission of Results for America, and how does RFA work to achieve its mission? So, can can government play Moneyball? That's the big question that Results for America, which is this now very broad-based coalition of government officials across administration, leaders across sectors, who believe strongly in improving the life outcomes of uh, young people and their families, particularly vulnerable populations. And so the question Results for America has posed is, can we work uh, to improve government performance and the collection and reporting of data, the commitment to evidence, the commitment to evaluation, so that we know that limited taxpayer dollars are actually being spent uh, wisely to help uh, those in need. So um, with terminology, I mean, when you're thinking about this money ball uh, or evidence, as you pointed, a lot of folks talk about effectiveness. I'd like to get a sense. Could either of you explain to me or give us a good definition of what is meant by evidence and uh, what is meant by program effectiveness? Sure. Well, Evidence is just proof. Uh, Mm -hmm. Washington, as many have said, uh, tends to be an evidence-free zone. Uh, (laughs) And what is important uh, to have with any program is the ability to have scientifically rigorous uh, evaluation of whether something works. Uh, It's important to agree at the outset what a program is supposed to accomplish, measure what it 
what it has done and uh, agree on the standards of um, whether it's actually working. John? I would just add that, you know, in the context, the budget wonks uh, tell us that uh, uh, less than one out of every $100 in domestic discretionary spending uh, is backed by even the most basic uh, evidence. So Bruce is right. (laughs) You know, uh, we don't want an evidence-free zone. And so Results for America and the coalition's committed to improving that. There was also a a GAO study showing that 37 percent of program managers – only 37 percent that said that their programs had been uh, evaluated in the last five years. And many, a uh, majority, didn't even know whether their programs had been evaluated. So the state of play uh, was pretty grim um, before RFA uh, got into this mix. And you mentioned earlier, you just mentioned the term evaluation or evaluated. So what is program evaluation? And perhaps you could outline some of the key elements uh, of program evaluation and to what extent it is essential in running an effective government program. Bruce? First, you need to have data. You need to uh, collect that data, evaluate it to see whether it's living up to the program's mission. It's important to have a common evidence framework because uh, you want to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples and need to know what are you shooting for? How good does the evidence have to be and how good does the result have to be. I would just add that you know the government is a wash in data, uh-huh. but how that data is being used, um, as Bruce mentioned, with a common evidence framework, but then translating into um, is this program, is this intervention actually effective in boosting outcomes, um, and prompting departments and agencies to do a better job in marshaling the evidence, committing resources to evaluation, and then integrating. This is going to be the tricky part: yeah. integrating what they've learned into changing programs, and even in some cases when the evidence is pretty strong that programs don't work, the tough, the tough play is actually um, shifting those resources to other programs that do and, and stopping what they were investing in. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And, and, all, and all of these elements kind of build the foundation to why we're really here. And, and that is what – I'd like to get a sense for our audience. What is the Federal Invest in What Works Index? Uh, that RFA puts out and it will be putting out today. What prompted its creation and, and how has it evolved to date? So departments and agencies across government spend, you know, literally billions and billions of dollars in resources. And if RFA's mission is to help low-income youth and their families, uh, it wanted to uh, prompt and foster and accelerate a culture of commitment to data and evidence uh, and in, in ensuring that government moves strongly in a direction toward investing in what works. And so instead of being a, a punitive exercise mm-hmm. where the index was um, you know, <laughs> designed to shame uh, departments and agencies, it was just the opposite. It was a cooperative uh, exercise where more than 75 um, former government officials and those in government cooperated to design an index that would actually achieve the goal that RFA was trying to achieve, which is to get government to move strongly in a direction of investing in what works um, for these populations. And uh, in turn, um, it designed about uh, 10 indicators of what constitutes a commitment to investing in what works in this index. And initially, it was a couple of agencies, the Department of Education and Labor. Uh, It's ramped up to seven departments and agencies who are committed to um, continuously improving and, and, and making their commitment to, to this work. 
And it's worth a real shout out to the agencies that have stepped forward and taken part in this because, you know, holding yourself to evidence is a, is a scary thing to do in any walk of life. It's particularly difficult in, in public life where everyone's watching, where uh, not everyone is rooting for you to succeed. But um, it can make a huge difference. Um, and, you know, uh, the, they say the definition of insanity is um, – doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, in government, the real definition of insanity is <laughs> is doing the same thing over and over again and not even measuring the result. We have an yeah. example of that. So when I was in the Bush administration, um, we discovered uh, the Even Start Family Literacy Program. The theory was educate uh, basically um, boost the literacy skills of parents mm-hmm. and that will in turn will translate to the kids, which is, sounds like a a good theory of change. But randomized control trials three times proved that those who were subject to the intervention did know better than the control group. And so um, we recommended that those resources be shifted to reading recovery programs that had evidence. Well, it took eight years, a billion dollars later, um, Congress finally shut down the program and redirected funding to more effective programs. But think about almost over a decade, young people you know, who are not getting access to high-quality literacy programs and the the opportunity cost of a billion dollars going into programs that weren't effective. So that that hit home to me, the, you know, the power of uh, the, Bruce's uh, uh, <coughs> a point about insanity, you know, the insanity of investing in things that weren't, were clearly proven to be ineffective. Well, you know, given your role and your, uh, your roles and your uh, – experience with this effort, how important is it to have agency or department leadership oversee these efforts and encourage the use of evidence and data to build and sustain that culture of learning or culture that you were talking about? Because it's a real it's, – it's transforming culture, making it a – if you're going to make Washington an evidence-focused zone as opposed to an evidence-free zone, it's a change in culture. How, how central is it for leadership to get involved? It's crucial. Uh, you know, you get out of government what you put into it, and it's a, uh, it is a very by-the-book kind of place. Uh, so it's important to have senior leadership on the case. It's important to have uh, an office, a, a function dedicated to this um, uh, because uh, uh, people working in government take their jobs very seriously and to, and uh, and perform to the standard that that is held out to them. Yeah, I would add one of the uh, exciting developments that I saw in, in to that question was um, something called HUDSTAT, oh, yeah. where the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development, because it has strong leadership, you know, that's committed not only to collecting and reporting good data, not only committed to evaluation, but then in the context of regular performance reviews. Um, if you, for example, they're committed to ending um, homelessness among veterans. Mm-hmm. And so they have a performance review around what does the data tell us? What is it? What are the evaluations tell us? And then you can go on their website and you can see the cities where they've ended chronic homelessness among veterans. And for those skeptics mm-hmm. <laughs> about, you know, government bureaucracies or civil servants or, you know, can government ever do good? Um, there's a lot of building evidence that government's doing extraordinary things uh, in areas like uh, reducing uh, homelessness among veterans. And it's in part because uh, departments like HUD 
are committed to taking data and evaluation seriously and then translating it into improving their programs. And that's their an outcomes. excellent example. They yeah. do have a lot to show on that one. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah, I think it's, all, it's, it's it plays an important role as well in focusing the legislative branch. We talk a lot about the executive branch and how uh, and often agencies are tasked with carrying out a program that wasn't that well thought through in the beginning. Uh, and then they're, and then the same people who designed that program hold a hearing holding them accountable for the failure of a program that they didn't design. Uh, so putting uh, some onus on Congress to think about evaluation, think about results when they design these programs, make sure that a program has a clear mission, that there are clear outcomes, uh, and that the agencies have the resources to measure and evaluate whether they work. And not to skip ahead, but that's a great point, Bruce. Is, is, do you see a shift at the legislative branch? And what's happening to kind of in, inculcate or instantiate the, the, the evidence angle? Is there something going I, on? I think there are a lot of encouraging things okay. going on. I think, uh, for one thing, this is an area where both parties can find some common ground. Uh, it's uh, you know, so much of the political debate is a theological one where people make up their minds before they before they look at um, uh, any results and um, uh, and any time you have a common denominator that people a common language that people can use so that they can. Uh, be honest with themselves about whether their idea actually works. It's a lot easier to back away from um, from your own bad idea if you have proof. Um, and it's a lot easier to advocate for it if you have proof. So we've, we've seen this in, in a few areas. The new education law that, that Congress just passed um, includes uh, uh, significant funding for evaluation. Um, it encourages the education department to uh, double down on what it's already been doing in uh, asking uh, districts to uh, use evidence-based um, interventions and in turning around low-performing schools. So it's part of a government catching up with a a shift that is happening in the outside world as well. Big data is changing the world. Big data is making all kinds of things possible and is forcing uh, everybody to up their game. So the, that's that's happening even here in Washington. <laughs> yeah, I would yes, just sir. add, Bruce is right. The legislative process cannot be just a faith-based <laughs> exercise. <laughs> and I had this little experience where with uh, Results for America, I, I testified before the House Ways and Means Committee. And, we, you know, we've all done that. And you show up and usually very few members show up. And and the room was full, oh, wow. all the seats, Democrat and Republican, and the focus was evidence-based policymaking. And when we talked about the SNAP program, okay. mm-hmm. um, you know, old food, uh, the new food stamps, um, I cited a statistic that in addition to giving access to low-income children and their families to nutritious food, it had increased high school graduation rates for those who had had access to it compared to those who had not uh, by 18 percentage points. And I had a number of Republicans who came up to me afterwards who were skeptical of SNAP because just a food distribution. Yeah. Per, but they saw these other outcomes, you know, that had to do with a pathway to prosperity and getting a job. And, and it changed their view of SNAP. And I think the more that we can, um, you know, there's a commitment now appropriators are making 0.5 percent or even 1 percent um, to fund uh, evaluations in departments and agencies. That, that's a real core focus of the RFA agenda. 
Um, and so I think if we can get Congress committed uh, to the evidence, and it's something that should appeal to Republicans because they want to invest in things, you know, limited government in things that work and eliminate funding for those things that don't. And for Democrats, it proves the proposition that government can be effective and can and, work and in areas still, where it's active. Yeah. Were you referring to the Ryan Murray kind of uh, – or is that – Yes. And okay. so one of the, the uh, um, uh, ideas that's emerged and that RFA endorsed and we announced at this hearing uh, was the, the Ryan Murray Evidence-Based mm-hmm. National Commission. Okay. And having the Speaker of the House who's you know, probably the policy leader now for the Republican Party – committed to the evidence agenda is, you know, could affect a sea change in how Congress views this work. What can be done to better integrate evidence and rigorous evaluation into decision-making? We will ask John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed from Results for America when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guests today are John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed from Results for America, and they're here to discuss today the Federal Invest in What Works Index. I'd like to explore the key federal agencies and departments' efforts to build evidence. And what I mean by that is perhaps you could highlight the progress made within key agencies in establishing a core leadership infrastructure to facilitate the use of evidence in informing policy decision-making. So the Labor Department has the chief evaluation office. Uh, Labor's the real leader on all this. They set aside uh, 1% of funding to uh, do uh, research and evaluation. The Education Department has an evaluation planning group. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the uh, Education Department is also uh, quite a leader, has done much over the last few years to push evidence um, uh, at the state and local level as well. John? I would add that the, uh, there are wonderful examples. The Corporation for National and Community Service that was seated in the Bush 1 administration uh, really created and ramped up in the Clinton administration and then further ramped up in the Bush 2 administration. So it's been a bipartisan effort. Um, it gives you 20, 27 out of 100 points for the applicants to state and national grants so programs like City Year and Teach for America and Habitat for Humanity and Youth Build that are familiar to many Americans and mobilize young people in a year of national service to their country to help tackle uh, you know, tough challenges in local communities. Uh, if you have evidence, if you have a theory of change that's supported by literature and research, you get you know, a chunk of points. Mm-hmm. If you actually have direct evidence, you know, evaluation of your program, like programs like Teach for America and City Year have, that show that they're in the dropout factory high schools and their feeder schools. They're uh, tutoring and mentoring those, those students who are off track and their programs, mentoring and tutoring, um, consistent with the, the evidence, are actually uh, boosting the outcomes and trajectories of those young people. 
the corporation is basically embedding in its uh, review and then grant making a real commitment to evidence. As Bruce mentioned too, the this, this uh, reauthorization of the No Child Left Behind Act, it, we we wrote a piece on it. It it is littered with evidence based. I'll just give you one example. There were more than there were about two thousand dropout factory high schools where fifty percent of high school dropouts were leaving school, just 15% of the schools. And over the last decade, we've reduced that number to about 1,000. And it's because there's been, you know, rigor in following evidence by those who've been making these reforms in in school districts and in partnership with community-based organizations and states. And so the federal government stepped up and said under Title I, you know, up to 7% of the funds can be uh, spent on these plans Mm -hmm. to reform low-performing schools. But you've got to follow the evidence. That was a big deal yeah. and a big signal that you know government was going to be on the side of those who were, have proof. So uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about is uh, the policies and plans and, and research and learning agenda that are happening at the departments and agency levels. Would you give us a sense of what evaluation plans, policies, research agendas – what do they contain? And perhaps more importantly, you could highlight some of the key successes in this area as, as outlined in the uh, What Works Index. I'll give you one that was interesting. In 2002, um, we worked with the U.S. Department of Education to create uh, the What Works Clearinghouse mm-hmm. and engage Mathematica, which is a very okay. you know rigorous uh, evaluation firm, um, to create the common evidence framework and to eventually review the programs uh, funded by the Department of Education and then post their results online. You know, very objectively, both the the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we joked early on it was the nothing works clearinghouse. <laughs> there wasn't anything to post. Uh, but over time, um, the good news was, uh, you know, consistent with rigor, uh, the department increasingly started to fund things that that did have evidence and did have outcomes. And it wasn't just a signal to government and what it should fund. It was actually a signal to nonprofits, to schools, to lots of stakeholders, business. Uh, you know, you look at social impact bonds and the emergence of private investors wanting to step up and ensure government only pays for success. And then they in turn could get a return on a good investment in a, in a program that has evidence. You saw the market start to move in the direction toward uh, more highly effective dropout prevention and recovery programs. And it's not a surprise to me that in the last decade, there have been there have been an 11 percentage point gain in high school graduation rates after 30 years of flatlining. And two million more students have graduated from high school rather than dropping out mm-hmm. because I think there's been a flow, you know, toward an evidence-based culture. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, government can play a great signaling role. You know, everyone out there uh, in all walks of life is looking for trusted information that they can count on. Uh, And if you're running a school or you're running a program at the local level uh, and you want to try something new, you want to know what's worked somewhere else. We've often had trouble convincing people at the local level that they should try something else. But when they want to, it's good for them to have a shopping list uh, uh, so that they learn from other people's um, mistakes. And a, num- and a number of agencies have done that really well. It's, so the, it, it's not just gathering the information. It's releasing it, making it easily available to the public. The Administration for Children and Families at HHS does an a- excellent job of this. Um, it's sharing with the world uh, uh, what – um, those who are looking at it from 30,000 feet and are seeing the whole playing field have seen 
to work or not work. So, John, uh, many federal agencies are using what works exchanges and repositories to communicate the results of their evidence efforts. Uh, would you elaborate on how these agencies are publicly releasing the findings of completed evaluations? You know, we don't know enough yet, but one of the when, – when this index was upgraded, you know, it started in 2013. It's going to be released for 2016 in all its glory, you know, with these seven departments and agencies who have stepped up and are doing the right thing. And so once you actually are learning from the data you're collecting and reporting, the Department of Education is a fabulous example where they're collecting data now – uh, common calculation of graduation rates, uh, their Office of Civil Rights, you know, attendance patterns, teacher absenteeism, suspension and expulsion policies, disaggregated data by race, ethnicity, income, and homelessness. I mean, it's fascinating. It opens up all sorts of vistas and windows into, like, what's going on in these school districts. And so the ability to share not only with uh, other departments and agencies – across programs within a department and agency, but at the state and local levels, uh, what you're learning from this data. Imagine, you know, collecting these data sets and then sharing that with Shelbyville High School in Shelbyville, Indiana, which was the poster school for Dropout Nation, right? And having an interactive dialogue about uh, how data can be the great, you know, driver of um, every child succeeding. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful. But we don't know yet because the index prompted all this um, insight and input from the agencies. Uh, but we're, we're collecting that and, and massaging that and, and trying to sort through it. So uh, I wanted to switch to uh, would you elaborate on the extent to which federal agencies have invested program funds in evaluation? Perhaps you could highlight uh, programs that have conducted, say, impact uh, studies, implementation studies, uh, or, you know, evaluation technical assistance kind of things. I'll give you one example yeah. that was so, you know, Bruce and his glory days in the Clinton administration, they had this new markets initiative, and one of the outgrowths of it, uh, he'll remember these, these youth opportunity grants um, that identified in 36 cities, suburbs, and rural communities and, and, and tribal lands these young people were disconnected from school and work mm-hmm. uh, and cost – we now know cost taxpayers every year $93 billion a year if we don't reconnect them. Wow. So it, you know, even if you're you – know, you're not compelled by the moral case, the, the economic case is overwhelming. And this is sort of a uh, – Bruce's colleague Gene Sperling in this book, Moneyball for Government, signaled the, the, the dangers of the on-off switch mm-hmm. and if uh, – the view that if you don't have evidence – you have to eliminate a program. So basically the Youth Opportunity Grant Program didn't have an evaluation in place. And the Congress for that ended up actually eliminating funding for the program. And then a few years later when I was there in the Bush administration, an evaluation came out in partnership with the Department of Labor showing that the Youth Opportunity Grants had actually uh, been extremely successful at reconnecting a disconnected youth to uh, to school and employment, and it shows you the dangers of um, saying, "Well, because you don't have evidence, we're just going to eliminate funding." So th- my point is, it's got to be a create an environment of curiosity and continuous improvement and building an evidence base, uh, so we can make smart investments and and uh, make choices, um, but not just eliminate programs that we don't know enough about. And Bridge raises an important point, which is government's a big grant maker. It's investing in a lot of efforts around the country. It's not that the 
that uh, everyone in Washington is actually running all these things, but they're taking a chance on new ideas ar- ar- around the country. And, and the index uh, puts a premium on making sure that agencies for their big competitive grants and their non-competitive grants as well, that they, uh, that they build research and evaluation into it. Um, and that's a, that's a great thing. That's a revolution that has happened in philanthropy as well, that instead of just signaling good intentions and hoping that things worked out, you actually uh, track for results. And I think that is doing a huge service to the people who at the front lines who are doing the innovating as well. It, it, it's so much easier, as anyone who's worked in the private sector or the public sector knows, if you have a clear outcome, a clear standard that you're working toward, if you know you're going to be held account- what you're going to be held accountable for, so that you're not just spending all your time trying to avoid making mistakes, avoid public embarrassment. You're actually trying to achieve a social good, and you're not just trying to justify your existence by things that don't actually matter to the result. So, I, you know, whenever I have this conversation around evidence, so, you know, folks talk about performance management as a way to capture that data that we're talking about. And all too often, I notice that uh, performance management and program evaluation are considered separate, uh, almost uh, uh, distinct tools. Um, So how important, gentlemen, is it to bridge that divide so you can take uh, advantage of the synergy between the two efforts? And more importantly, based on the What Works Index, how are specific agencies working to better integrate uh, evaluation and performance measurement? I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, there are hundreds of reports <laughs> sitting on shelves of government, and nonprofit, and private sector offices. And but if you know, Bruce made the point earlier: is if you need a clear goal, yeah. clear priorities, you need uh, actually a strategy to reach those priorities. You may need to make sure your strategy and your plan are driven by evidence of what works, and then have a real commitment to. You know, being open-minded about you know even where you've made large investments in the past, and 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 be willing to say you know that wasn't right, or we've learned so much more now. Let's let's adjust, and then have a commitment to um, you know accountability for results, transparency, and reporting. And I as I, I think the Department of Housing and Urban Development with this HUDSTAT model mm-hmm. is uh, shows a commitment to you know, regular performance reviews around, you know, their priorities. And other agencies, the Department of Labor, Department of Education, you know, it it's had a, a focus on, um, you know, improving the lowest performing schools, boosting high school graduation rates. It now has a college scorecard so young people can see the relationship between, um, you know, tracks they've taken in high school and what their opportunities could be beyond and post-secondary, not just four-year but also two-year institutions, uh, you know, as we, as we look to educate more young people to, to get the jobs of the future as the whole equation has shifted from you only needed a high school diploma for 75 percent of the jobs a generation ago. Mm-hmm. And today it's completely flipped. You need, you need uh, um, at least uh, high school and at least some college. And so the departments are, are showing a commitment to you know, performance uh, reviews and upping their game with respect to programs that have real impacts on people like mm-hmm. these young people who are trying to get educated and find a job. Yeah, HUDSTAT is a great program and that, that whole uh, range of programs uh, – is built on a, a couple decades of of great work that started in New York City with a a, a, a program that uh, transformed 
the police department transformed crime fighting by simply measuring how well police were doing in keeping places safe. Um, and it it showed leaders ac- uh, across the country that if you gave a, a, even a huge bureaucracy a, a clear goal and uh, met, met with managers regularly to see how they were progressing towards that goal, as long as you got the goal right uh, and as long as you kept track, uh, you could you could make strides that no one imagined possible. That's a great transition to um, sort of the index highlights federal agencies' efforts to collect, analyze, and share uh, the use of high-quality administrative and survey data to improve programs. So would you elaborate on the key progress that's happened as evidenced by the uh, 2016 index in the area of data sharing, uh, documentation, data standards? So one area where I think we've seen an explosive and really hopeful growth in the sharing of data is, is actually um, in education. Uh, let me give you an example there. Um, uh, the evidence out of Chicago and Johns Hopkins showed that early warning systems uh, that tracked a young person's attendance, behavior, and course performance in reading and math were far more predictive of whether that student would drop out than a test course. Or, um, and so... Uh, the Department of Education made a real commitment to uh, sharing that information, um, uh, holding conferences, summits uh, in partnership with um, research institutions on how schools and districts could you know, ramp up their early warning systems. Um, it, it's recently at the White House there was announced a chronic absenteeism campaign. Okay. And so um, those – that commitment to – to research data and evidence and then actually getting – this gets to performance review and, you know, what actually happens with, with this good data and evidence. These school districts um, were brought along and now, you know, large numbers of them, particularly the low-performing schools, uh, have the data and the capacity and then aligning with interventions, community-based supports and school-based supports to get the kids the, the support they need as these alarms are, are, are signaled. I know we talked about it briefly before, but I just wanted to say, do you folks, do you gentlemen have anything else to add around um, user-friendly tools that federal agencies are using or employing to disseminate and promote the use of evidence-based interventions? Sort of get folks on board. Is there, are there any particular tools out there? Maybe the What Works Clearinghouses or something? Yeah. The, you know, it's interesting. The What Works Clearinghouses are really, uh, in some cases, maybe more useful to stakeholders on the outside. Um, I've also noticed, you know, in the national service space, um, Corporation for National Community Service has been increasingly – they have a whole research division, uh, which is pretty important because the civic life of our country, you look at, you know, how the country – the levels of social trust today, how we're tearing ourselves apart in communities across the country. And, uh, you know, having a, organizations that committed to actually figuring out how we can knit the country together – people of different races, ethnicities, income levels coming together to serve and solve problems. But what they've done is um, – so like the Minnesota Reading Corps had a randomized control trial. It showed it, it was highly effective in boosting literacy rates. Uh, it's been publicizing and through user-friendly tools through the web and a lot of these modern internet tools I don't even fully understand. has <laughs> been getting, getting the word out so that other communities and other grantees as they're applying in to get support from the corporation – can see programs like the Minnesota Reading Corps or City Year or Teach for America or then ones you've never – maybe like Earth Conservation Corps you've never heard of 
but that have good outcomes and have a theory of change that's grounded in evidence. And the good news is the corporation actually awards you points for doing that. Uh, so they've been very uh, appropriately aggressive in getting uh, the word out on, uh, on uh, you know, what's been successful. How can federal agencies increase their evaluation capacity? We will ask John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed from Results for America when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. How has the military health system been transformed? What innovations are being pursued by the Defense Health Agency? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary for Health Affairs within DOD, on his last interview. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guests today are John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed from Results for America, and they're here to discuss today the Federal Invest in What Works Index. So, uh, John, earlier on you mentioned uh, uh, evidence and the uh, and innovation. I actually want to talk about the intersection between the evidence agenda and innovation. How are federal agencies uh, being innovative in the area of what works and improving the impacts uh, of what works on their programs. And where I'm going with this is perhaps you can highlight how they are successfully employing prizes, challenges, innovation labs, accelerators, and performance uh, partnership pilots or something like that. So. Yeah, no, it's so exciting to see. You don't expect it necessarily um, from government. And, you know, these officials have to go up and testify before Congress and show a demonstrable effect and return on investment. And, you know, or the appropriators are not pleased. So it's 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 actually takes courage to step up. You know, Race to the Top was a really interesting experiment um, where you, the theory was we have a limited uh, but not insubstantial uh, amount of funding that we can award um, and they're going to be, you know, buckets and criteria that we want to uh, encourage, you know, based on evidence to encourage um, school districts around the country to gravitate toward. And the big news there was with a limited amount of funding, you uh, fostered um, reforms all across the country, even for those who didn't receive the funds. Another innovative um, effort was the Invest, the I3, the Invest in Innovation Program at the Department of Education, and it's sort of a tiered evidence model that I referenced. Um, but programs like 
uh, diplomas now. It's a, a whole-based, uh, a whole school reform model that works in partnership with communities and schools that provides community-based supports to students together with City Year, a national service program that has teams of 12 to 15 students go in and and with these early warning systems help the students uh, who are off track with tutoring and intensive mentoring and double dosing and greeting them at 7.30 in the morning, walking them home through tough neighborhoods at night, knocking on doors at homes when uh, students haven't showed up for school. Um, all those things actually working in concert are things that the government is uh, strongly supporting now because of these innovation funds. So I think the more that is part of this you know, commitment to evaluation and evidence – it, it's under the umbrella of we're going to foster an environment of continuous learning and we're going to create mechanisms like innovation funds, pay-for-success models, social impact bonds, um, uh, what works clearinghouses. Uh, to show that commitment uh, is absolutely critical. And the Millennium Challenge Corporation uh, has done a, a terrific open da- data challenge where they um, – tried to take advantage of the wisdom of, of crowds and did a call to action to uh, masters and PhD students who are working in uh, in that field to take advantage of Millennium Challenge Corporation's data. And the government has so much information uh, that it gathers on a routine basis in uh, in in the in the private sector, uh, enormous enterprises have been built around the smart use of of that data. So what a lot of cities have done and now what the federal government is starting to do is make some of that data available to creative people on the outside who can find a way to hack a particular problem in a particular uh, jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, the government is good at some things, not good at others. It's not, it's not always the best at uh, at presenting data in an interesting, readable way. That's, that's something that has made tremendous progress um, in the private sector over the last decade. And there are lots of ordinary citizens out there who are just interested in, uh, uh, in helping solve problems. I mean, there, there's this great program, Code for America, which recruits uh, talent from Silicon Valley to take advantage of data from the federal government and, and recast the way uh, the, the federal government is designing its benefit applications or other um, other ways of accessing federal government and making the most of the evidence that we already have. So, you know, it's one thing, and, and you've, both of you gentlemen have mentioned this throughout the conversation today, it's one thing to uh, assess whether a program is effective and, and working and use evidence to inform how you're moving forward with that. It's quite another to shift funds away from something that's not working. And what are some of the challenges to program owners and to department leaders in doing that? So you have all this evidence. You know something's working and you know something's not working. How do they make that that decision to uh, cut bait and shift the funds? Well, that always has been the rub. In government, as in anything else, you have to put your money where your mouth is. Um, and uh, a number of agencies have um, have stepped forward to set guidelines for themselves and actually hold themselves accountable to their own evidence. The Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation has done that by closing down some of the compacts that didn't work. Uh, USAID has done it with its uh, health programs um, in Armenia. HUD has shifted funds. Um, out of interventions that didn't work in, into interventions that have 
a better chance. Uh, it's a difficult thing. Admitting uh, admitting failure is never easy. Um, and let's be honest, not everybody working in the federal government or working in the Congress designing these programs is totally bought in yet on the idea of that we should have evidence. I mean, we have, you know, we're 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 still having debates about whether climate change is real, um, and that's true at an even more intense level. If you've designed a program, it's going to take a lot of evidence to convince you to let go. You also, I mean, another example to their credit, the Department of Justice, you know, saw the overwhelming evidence that scared straight this theory of action where you, you know, former inmates go and meet with uh, young people at high risk of uh, committing crimes, and they found, uh, unfortunately, that uh, it 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 didn't scare them straight. Um, and so they put out you know, strong guidance across the country uh, that those programs um, uh, should, don't work and, and should not be supported at any level. Um, but Bruce is right. All of a sudden, you know, these departments and agencies can have all the will in the world to want to follow the evidence. But um, Ron Haskins in his book on the Obama administration's commitment to evidence talked about you – know, has a chart in there of all the considerations. If you're a member of Congress – um, you know, it was the William F. Goodling even start family literacy program. He was an educator. Mm-hmm. People loved him. He was the chairman of the committee. <laughs> you know, a lot of people got grants in their districts from that program. Uh, maybe the majority leader signaled that, you know, this is something we got to support, you know, the congressman on. Um, a lot of considerations go into the, the mix of appropriations. And uh, so we have, in, in addition to working with departments and agencies, uh, results for America is increasingly spending more time, uh, obviously, on on the Hill. You gentlemen know that when you shape these programs, it's not necessarily a rational process or a linear process <laughs> in any respect. So, uh, just to get, bring us back to the index, um, I'd like to get your perspectives on. Uh, perhaps you could highlight some of the most uh, significant improvements identified in the index from last year to this. Say, so, so from FY15 to now. Um, you know, I would say this, and again, we don't know quite enough. It's, sure. it, 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 but the data sharing, um, we discovered there's so much administrative data that government has that it's so valuable, and uh, entering into um, uh, agreements, you know, respecting privacy, uh, but sharing that information not just within departments and agencies, but at uh, the state and local levels, absolutely essential and critical. I've also seen. Um, you know, there's been a commitment to, to resources and we've had – RFA has had this principle that if it's true that less than $1 out of every 100 is backed by even the most basic evidence, why not make at least a commitment to 1 percent of appropriations across a department and agency that would inform how the other $99 are spent, 99 percent of funds are spent and the Department of Labor in particular – uh, has made a real commitment to this, and I saw the Department of Education. I think has the secretary has discretion to spend 0.5 percent uh, of resources for evaluations. So I think the commitment to resources, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. <laughs> we can <laughs> theoretically we can say all this stuff is good. <laughs> and the last thing I'd say is the commitment to chief evaluation officers and you know some senior level leadership that is committed to the marriage of evaluation and performance review and continuous improvement because without that, you can have a lot of good evaluations. You can even post things on your What Works Clearinghouse, but you haven't really 
change the culture within the department. And I think that that leadership is is it's been ramped up and it's been a really good development. Um, so, Bruce, John, uh, what is the relationship between this agenda and your experience in John the Bush administration and Bruce in the Obama White House, respectively? So, when I was in the Bush administration, interestingly, the, the President Bush had been the first MBA president, mm-hmm. and we were briefing him two times a week in the Oval Office. And if it was ever on a you know new initiative for the State of the Union or a, a program-based uh, briefing, he'd ask some version of the same four questions. One, will this program achieve the results as, as advertised? Basically, what's the evidence base? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Prove it. Mm-hmm. Second, uh, who's going to run this program? And I'd say, well, the assistant secretary for such. No, 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 no. What's the name of the person? Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and is he or she a good manager? Uh, third was um, how are we going to be accountable, you know, for results, and how are we going to report that to the American people? What what are the mechanisms and the systems? And then fourth was you know how are we going to uh, learn and evolve and improve over time? Out of that came uh, the Office of Management and Budget created uh, under Mitch Daniels a uh, a new system called the Performance Assessment Rating Tool. And very quickly, it just basically these programs, and it measured a thousand programs over the life of the Bush administration. What's the what's the goal? What's the strategy to meet it? What's the evidence base? And finally, uh, how are we going to be accountable? And when I was the co-chair of the White House Task Force on Disadvantaged Youth, mm-hmm. we discovered there were three hundred and thirty-nine federal programs across twelve departments and agencies spending two hundred and twenty-four billion dollars a year to help the 15 million uh, young people at risk of not reaching productive adulthood and their families. And when we went underneath the surface, the hood, and said, to what extent are these programs evaluated and effective? It was a fraction. You could tell there, you know, how many meals, like to, how many fruit bowls, how many meals, uh, how many mentors, but very little on outcomes. And uh, that was a real wake-up call that uh, uh, government needed to up its game on evidence. Mm-hmm. Bruce? I've been working in Washington for 30 years, uh, long enough to be part of the problem. And, <laughs> I, and my first two bosses were Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Uh, and when I started at the White House in uh, 1993, one of the first things we did was launch a national performance review led by uh, Vice President Gore uh, to reinvent government, to look at everything, every government program, see whether it was working re-up to the ones that were and cut bait on the ones that weren't. That was a fabulous effort for its time. Uh, One thing that uh, President Clinton and Vice President Gore soon found out was that Congress was in no way ready to make government work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they pushed the envelope as far as they could and and were successful um, on a number of fronts. I think with each successive administration, we've seen a renewed enthusiasm for this because and with good reason um you know the government serves at the will of the people and for the for for the last uh, 25 years there's been a real challenge for anyone working in government to you know deal with what my uh, what my old boss bill clinton used to say the uh, uh, the the common belief among average americans the government can the federal government couldn't run a two car funeral uh, i think the the movement's come a long way. Now we know how many cars are in the funeral, um, and now. Um, 
President Obama has um, has done a terrific job of signaling to everybody who works in his administration that evidence and results are what he values. Congress is coming along. It's important for the next administration and the next Congress to do the same. Um, this is, as we've talked about, this is the hardest thing to do in life. You know, I'm, uh, my hero and inspiration in politics is George Orwell, who used to write that uh, our duty in politics is to recognize the truth that's in front of our nose. Um, and uh, there are lots of reasons, self-preservation, re-election, pride, and so on, that get in the way of that in public life. But ultimately, uh, the best thing for everybody concerned, both the taxpayers and those who serve them, is to deliver the goods. And if you believe in an affirmative role for government, it's important for you to have evidence that the role you're pushing actually works. And if you're skeptical of government, the same is true. Americans are an incredibly practical people. But the common language that we speak and respect is results. So uh, turning to the future, um, can you tell us more about what's next in the evidence and innovation agenda? When I was in the Bush administration, we were so proud of part. You know, we had a thousand programs that uh, informed the the budget decisions in terms of what would go in the president's budget that was submitted. Well, I did up. win the Harvard Innovation Award. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got right. to take some credit for it. That's right. And uh, and then the budget would land on the steps of Congress with a thud, because we actually. It wasn't a collaborative exercise, cooperative exercise with the Congress in terms of identifying um, a common uh, evidence framework that Congress and the administration could buy in together. And Bruce mentioned how hard it is for all sorts of reasons. But the next, I think, wave of innovation for Results for America uh, and this effort to bring um, – you know, have a government play Moneyball is to do the hard work with the Congress so that at the front end of – hearings, consideration of, of programs, the legislative process, authorizations like we just saw in ESSA, yes. which was a really hopeful sign but frankly unusual, <laughs> um, and making sure that touches and affects the appropriations process in ways that, that uh, enables the system to actually support evidence-based policy. Well, as I close, uh, I always ask uh, folks, you, you gentlemen have been around uh, the executive branch for a while. And I, I want to get a sense, um, would you give advice? What advice would you give someone who maybe is thinking about a career in public service? Bruce? The advice that uh, that I always give to young people trying to decide what to do with their lives is um, uh, don't give up on your dreams until reality forces you to. Um, and, you know, I think there's a... A general sense among many young people that government doesn't matter or government doesn't work or they see the the noise coming out of Washington and think, oh, I don't want to be part of that. And there are plenty of other good ways to make a difference in life, but it's important not to give up on this one because, you know, one of the things you realize later in life is how important it is to have, if you're trying to solve problems, to have the leverage to solve those problems. Uh, and uh, at the federal level, if you have an idea and you push for that idea and you can get that idea done, you can you you can solve uh, so many more problems and do so much more good than you can in any other uh, walk of life. So you know we all owe a duty to our country as well as to one another. 
Uh, it's a noble profession to serve in government and at any level, and it's worth a look. It does. It nowadays, uh, people uh, have an opportunity to try a lot of different professions in life, and uh, and public service ought to be one of them. Wonderful, John. It's just odd we have to do a sales job on government service <laughs> today because, <laughs> you know, Bruce and I grew up at a time when, you know, President Kennedy and, and was calling us all to, to think about what we could do for the country in addition to what the country could do for us. And I, uh, our next door neighbor was Neil Armstrong oh. who, you know, gave us a pretty <laughs> bold vision <laughs> for the power of, of public service, you know, to transform the world as the entire world watched that little moment, which was a, you know, more than decadal effort of government and private sector, uh, innovation working together to have a clear goal that a president set, a young president set and inspired us to achieve, and we achieved it. Mm -hmm. And so what I end up doing when I talk to young people, of course, I say, follow your bliss, find out what your passion is. And these millennials, you know, they want to invent their own ways mm -hmm. to transform the world and to hack problems. And, and that's wonderful. But if you actually want to, I think it was Cokie Roberts who said to me, you know, you can have a, a, an impact on one community or one problem or through one nonprofit. But if you want to change the country and the world with systems change, Fundamentally, you have to go into some kind of public service, into government service. And I, I cite, you know, saving 6.3 million lives in Africa from malaria. I cite two more two million more kids graduating from high school. I cite, you know, almost eradicating polio worldwide. And that government was at the center of all those things. Mm -hmm. There are these hope spots and that young people ought to – be curious and bold and courageous. Abraham Lincoln, who's I guess my George Orwell, said that the role of government was to do that for the people which they otherwise couldn't do for themselves. And I think young people today embrace that and go off to, to change the world themselves. Uh, but I hope they remember, too, that there are a lot of people out there who are vulnerable and needy and this results for America campaigns, you know, wildly committed to helping uh, low-income youth and their families. And we can't do it without, you know, the help of government. And uh, hopefully these young people can be part of that. Great. Well, John, Bruce, thanks for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Michael. It's been thanks great so fun. Much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation on the Federal Investment What Works Index with John Bridgeland and Bruce Reed, Senior Ed Fellows at Results for America. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How has the military health system been transformed? What innovations are being pursued by the Defense Health Agency? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary for Health Affairs within DOD, on his last interview. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.